There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Welcome to Party of the People. On this episode, we'll be joined by Boots Riley, the director of the new movie, Sorry to Bother You. The main contradiction, the motor that moves capitalism is the exploitation of labor. It's what created capitalism is the big exploitation of labor called slavery. And we have the news with me, Clint, Brittany, and Sam, as usual. DeRay, I'm so excited about your book. Are you excited about it? I am excited. I'm excited that I'm done writing. It took a long time to write it. I feel like I've been writing it for the last four years, but... You I'm have. I'm finally done, and <laughs> it's coming out to the world. It's sort of nerve-wracking, though, to like wait for the reviews and stuff to come in. Well, we're definitely waiting with bated breath. What can you tell people about what they can find in there? Yeah, it's about what I learned in the streets when, when we were together in the streets from the initial wave of the protests in Ferguson, and what activism has taught me in general about resistance, justice, freedom, inclusivity, identity. And I try to like reflect on those things and offer up a vision about the world that we can live in and how we get there. So I think about it as like an invitation and a reflection so we can imagine like the world we want to live in. I heard there's something special about those pre-orders too. Yeah, if you pre-order a portion of all the proceeds from the pre-order, up to 20,000 books is actually going to support the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And you know the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, don't you, Brittany? I surely do. I love them and appreciate them for everything they do. That's awesome. Because I wanted the book not only to like help people when they read it, but I want it to also help people who are leading in this work, which is why we are doing the pre-order thing. So go to Dre.com today, pre-order it, help me out, help out the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and you'll get the book. You know, our ego sneaks up on us even in the moments when we, when our heart is in the right place. And when the things that we put out in the world are things that we do from our sense of purpose. So my message uh, for this week is to remember, and this is inspired by Cleo Wade, that you put your gifts out in the world because of some internal motivation, not because you want external validation. Let's do it. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Peck Yeti on all social media. This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Hey, hey, hey. This is Dre at Dre DIY on Twitter. Yesterday, folks on, on Twitter may have seen that there was a professor, an economics professor, who wrote a piece for Forbes essentially about how Amazon should replace local public libraries to save taxpayers money. And if you've never seen a Twitter ratio, that was a Twitter ratio for the ages. And and I think rightly so. <laughs> so I think while public libraries remain an abstraction for some, uh, for many of us, they were and continue to be this sanctuary, this community, and, and really this sort of public rejection of the idea that knowledge should be contingent on what you can afford. And, and it's a place that no matter what sort of there's that there's no price that can be placed on ideas and and so many of us have stories and and moments that we remember from our own childhood and even now you know whether it be we've talked about on this podcast the pizza hut personal pan pizza reading summer summer reading contest yeah. shout out to the book challenge shout out to the book challenge and from the book challenge that got you a personal pan pizza all the way to <laughs> was that accelerator reader was that what it's called? I don't know the name. <laughs> that's, I just what, know, I, that's what I remember. I just yeah. remember the pizza. But uh, but it's. I mean, this is also the idea of of privatizing deeply public institutions and and saying that the efficacy of certain institutions can can be measured through a spreadsheet. When we know that whether it be the National Endowment of the Arts, whether it be books that are brought to communities um, in rural areas, whether it be public libraries, there are some things that can't be measured. On a spreadsheet, and and I think that you know, in this political environment, we have folks who are trying to cut these sort of basic services that are are fundamental to, you know, American democracy in many ways. And and so I think it's important 
you know, that we continue to back libraries and librarians and because they, they really do the sort of unsung, unheralded work of, of so many communities. And it's so much bigger than books, right? We've talked about the fact that librarians have been useful in helping to send the tide of the opioid crisis. And they've literally saved lives uh, in those library buildings. There are people whose only source of the internet comes from public libraries. There are people who leverage public libraries for shelter and knowledge at the same time. I remember in the early days of Ferguson when we partnered with a number of retired educators and community leaders uh, and Ferguson florists and teachers to open up a school in the Ferguson library uh, when schools were closed due to the uprising. And so if that hadn't been free and public open space, we would not have been able to serve over 200 students um, for an entire week uh, and let them know that they were loved and that they were safe. Uh, And so Jeff Bezos is already making like $25 million a minute or something wild like that. So, you know, Jeff is cool. He doesn't (laughs) need our library books too. I would like to keep those free. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Who even writes, like who, like, to imagine what like incredible privilege you must have to just not think about like the cultural parts of libraries, like how important it is that people have a physical space. Libraries serve as more than just spaces for books, but they're like community mm-hmm. spaces. Like that op-ed was just so flat and and like missing any sense of what it actually means to like live in a community that it was shocking that Forbes even published it. It is one of those, uh, you know, people think about it as a place for only sort of reading and books, as you said, DeRay, but, you know, for folks who are homeless, folks who are marginalized, like this can be one of the only places where you can actually exist, like unbothered and not be in a place where you have to pay money to just be in a space uh, and to take that space away and not even think about like calling for those spaces to be closed down in favor of Amazon is just egregious and it's wild. And one of the most moving things for me has been after I published my, my first book um, was having people like send me screenshots of them picking it up from the like picking the book up from the library or saying that the book is on hold at the library. And this is a great time to remember that you can get DeRay's new Aww. book at your local public library. Pew, pew. Boom, boom, boom. Coming out in September. Boom, 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 boom. That was a that wasn't even planned. I appreciate you. I was on the cover of the Advocate, and um, the first time I ever actually saw the magazine on the cover was in a library. I walked in, and I was like, Aww. "There I am." And more importantly, hey, that's me. Look at you offering like a real range of like magazines mm-hmm. in a library. Because I remember being a gay black kid in this city in Baltimore, and like I don't even know where I would have gotten the Advocate. Like I just don't know where mm. it would have been because mm-hmm. it certainly wasn't coming to my house. And like, think about libraries as those places, not Amazon. I also know that that we closed out this last weekend um, with a standoff and an incident involving an active shooter at a Trader Joe's in Los Angeles. I had two very good friends in there. Thankfully, they made it out safe and alive. That is not the case for one woman and her family um, as they are thinking about her today. And so I just want to not only lift up thoughts and prayers to those families and to all of the people involved, because I'm a person who believes that thoughts and prayers are necessary, and faith without works is dead. And so it is a reminder that every single day that we do not pass meaningful gun control legislation in this country is another day that people are unsafe, another day that people are wondering if they're going to make it home to their loved ones. Uh, And so I just wanted to be thankful and grateful that my friends are still with us. But let this serve as an important reminder that statistically there are, it's highly likely that one of you listening will be in a similar situation um, where someone, somebody that you know, or you yourself could be in an active shooter situation. Um, And so I I am hopeful that we will remain vigilant um, and active in the work uh, to pass meaningful gun control. My friends who were in the Trader Joe's, I know from the world of education, and it is back to school time once again. It feels like back to school time gets earlier and earlier every year, which I don't think parents are mad at. Um, (laughs) But um, (laughs) knowing that it is back to school time means that it is school supply shopping time. And I don't know about you all, but I used to get that list. And mom and I used to go to Target and we would buy lots of things in Target. The other people that are heading to Target and Walmart and 
lots the Dollar Tree and lots of other places in order to get those back to school supplies are our teachers. We are in a place where Target actually offered a 15% discount on essential items to teachers knowing full well just how much teachers spend from their own pockets every single year. Now this is not new news whatsoever. Um, We know that teachers have been doing this every single year. We hopefully know that this is not the way that things should be. But the AFT actually recently put out a study that tries to paint the picture of just how severe education funding is right now. Now that we are in a post-recession era, they looked at whether or not funding has returned to its pre-recession era levels. Uh, The Obama administration provided a $145 billion relief appropriation from Congress to states, um, and school districts received about $80 billion of that for relief. That funding actually ran out in 2011, and there are many states who actually never adjusted their tax rates in order to maintain the kind of money that would create balance. And so as AFT and Axios report, there are 25 states that are spending less on education now than they did in 2008 when the economy first sunk into a recession. And now that we are out of that recession, thanks Obama, we are still seeing that both K-12 through and uh, higher education are not being funded at proper levels. There are actually 41 states that funded higher education institutions less in 2006 than they did in 2008. What does that mean? That means that teacher pay is suffering, that means that facilities are suffering, and if you remember Back to when we talked about the students who actually sued for the education that they deserve in Detroit, they cited precisely those decrepit conditions that they were being forced to learn in. As of right now, schools are still underfunded by about $19 billion because of state tax cuts. And so as teachers are walking into that target, as parents and family members are walking into those stores to buy those school supplies, I just think this is a really important conversation to keep bringing up until we actually do something about it. I remember one time uh, getting my students some supplies from uh, an unnamed dollar store. And uh, the poor, my poor babies, the, the lead was falling out of the pencils. Eight-year-olds are tough on pencils, and they were, like, breaking in half halfway through the day. <laughs> um, but that's what I could afford. And the fact that I was having to pay for those at all was the problem. We often ignore the subject of funding and education because we're entranced with other research, what great teachers can do or the difference that excellent principals can make or the innovations of technology or newly structured school days. And it's not that any of these things should be off the table. They should absolutely be on the table. But we should also be fulfilling the basic needs of schools and the people in them. We need a strong foundation on which all of those people can innovate. So obviously, this is something tied to a lot of the teacher strikes that were happening early this year. Um, and, and teachers have been fed up. And, and you know, people have seen their wages uh, fail to increase over over time. And as Inflation has increased, as cost of living has increased. There's been some work done by the Economic Policy Institute that found that teachers' average weekly wages have fallen by $30 per week between 96 and 2005 um, after you adjust for inflation, whereas they increase significantly among all other college graduates. And, and the Economic Policy Institute also found that public school teachers were earning about 2% less than comparably qualified private sector workers in 1994, a disparity that grew to 17% in 2015, right? So so teachers are 17% of your income, you know, for the same, you have the same qualifications as your counterparts and you make a decision to go work as a public school teacher, uh, to serve your community, to do the work that is, and to be clear, not not as a martyr, not as someone who is saying, oh, I am I am sacrificing myself for for this work because it, it shouldn't have to be that, right? You should, society should recognize that this is a, a difficult job and an, an honorable job and a job worthy of being praised, certainly, but also a job that in which someone should be paid in a commensurate with the skills and credentials that they offer in the same way that their counterparts in the private sector do. And we've seen over the last two decades how teacher pay has failed to increase uh, at the same rate as their private sector counterparts. And and I think that, you know, what Brittany brings up is really illuminating the fact that that Target has this gesture, which in and of itself is 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 kind and is and is noble, but should on a systemic and institutional level not have to be necessary um, if we were actually paying teachers what they needed and if we were actually funding schools in the way that they should be. 
in so many of these states where teacher and school funding has been cut, it's happened in Republican-controlled states where they've enacted tax cuts that have essentially drained uh, the resources of the state to pay for things like education. And what we also see at the same time uh, are Republicans in many of these states moving to enact laws that would make it harder to actually raise taxes to raise the funds to restore some of that funding and then you know go beyond just restoring it to what it had been, uh, but actually fully funding education in the state. So for example, in Florida, Republican lawmakers approved a ballot measure, so they didn't, you know, collect the signatures, the 700,000 signatures that other ballot measures have had to do because they haven't had Republican support in Florida. Uh, they just passed a measure to put it on the ballot that would require a two-thirds supermajority of the legislature to enact any new taxes in Florida. So this is one of those states that has seen huge cuts to education and teacher pay over the past several years, uh, and Republicans want to bake that in uh, sort of permanently so that a state, the state couldn't even you know, reasonably raise taxes without two-thirds of the legislature, which we know is extremely difficult to achieve. Uh, and so that is a way structurally that Republicans are thinking about permanently preventing the state from being able to fund things like health care and education, all these things that we know uh, are important and that hopefully in November uh, people get elected into office that can fight for these things. So we have to defeat this in the ballot. I uh, have to defeat this in the legislatures now so that when we do elect uh, hopefully candidates that are uh, going to commit to spending more on education, they aren't burdened by these barriers that make it almost impossible for them to actually uh, enact the laws that would fund uh, education the way it needs to be funded. Um, the only thing I, you know, I was most recently the chief human capital in the school system in Baltimore, and we had a $125 million deficit, which is sort of wild. It's a $1.3 billion school system here in the city of Baltimore. And at a point, we thought that we were going to lay off 1,000 people. And we were going to have to just figure out how to make it work. And like a thousand people being laid off would have so dramatically changed the shape and contour of our schools. And people were just like, this is what you got to do. And we're like, a thousand people is a lot. A thousand teachers. There's a thousand teachers, not even just a thousand staff members. And during that conversation, what we saw is people really have to like show up for kids. And it was like the 125 is actually just going to bring us back to like basic. It's still not equitable funding in the city of Baltimore. And I just remember those conversations and the superintendent will always say something I thought was really powerful. She was like, we are not begging for scraps. We're just asking for what we deserve. This isn't begging at all because it's not like we're asking for more than we deserve or we want you to like treat us in some special way. She's like, we're just asking for you to give us what you said you were going to give us. And then we need to fight for like the what we deserve that's on top of this. And I think that that has to be our position in this work that like, the outcomes in public education are linked to some of the lack of resources that we have. And you all remember when the school system here in Baltimore, like there was no heat in school buildings. And that's because like the funding at the school level is just so basic that there's not money for all like the repairs and infrastructure. And Brittany, you talked about your tip as a teacher. Uh, what I learned really quickly is that the kitchen where like the kitchen section of places like Ikea has some of the most mm -hmm. durable stuff. It doesn't break the glass holds. All my like containers for markers and stuff came from the kitchen section because the stuff you get in like the office supply thing, that's that cheap plastic. But like that like <laughs> kitchen glass, that's not going to break. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Free advice. I I will just close by saying this. We know that great teachers make miracles happen every single day. Shout out to librarians and shout out to great teachers. So I'm, I'm a witness to what creative, dedicated teachers can do. I've seen them. I see them all the time. But I also know we're asking them to do more than they should have to do. Imagine what those same teachers could do if their basic needs were met, if they were not restrained by the challenges of funding. And let's be very clear, the karma of underfunding and under-resourcing our schools will come back to us quickly and over the long term. When it comes to schools, we are going to pay later for how cheap we are being now. Again, I say, just as I said last week, just as we always say, a quality education is the right of every child, and we should support the teachers and schools we entrust them with to provide it. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals 
are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. My news has to do with Facebook. In May, Facebook started uh, a public archive of political ads. So you can search their database. You can look at uh, who is creating and uh, you know, disseminating what political ads and who they're targeting with those ads. And researchers have looked at that database, and what they found was that the top spender in the country on political ads is Trump, who spent $274,000 on ads uh, since early May, which is when the data began uh, being made available, uh, outpacing the second biggest spender, which was Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And I bring this news because it highlights, one, it provides data uh, to support what, what many of us have seen through the, this past campaign and also uh, under this administration, uh, which is a political strategy from this administration that has focused on spending a lot of money on digital ads, Facebook, and using those ads in often nefarious ways uh, to sort of gin up anger and, you know, get spread fake news and do all of these things that uh, we see them doing uh, in the sort of traditional media space, but doing it at scale through Facebook. Uh, and so just to give you a sense of what $274,000 in Facebook ads buys you, uh, for Trump and his, uh, his PAC, his political action committee, uh, 37 million people have seen their ads since May. Uh, and so that is a huge amount of people. You know, you can actually see what kinds of ads they are you know, showing people. A lot of it recently has focused on uh, the Supreme Court nomination. But long story short, I think this is emblematic of the ways in which political campaigns have shifted to focus on digital, to utilizing Facebook and other digital platforms to spread information. Uh, and as we've seen, the risks of that can be uh, tremendous, uh, not only when we're thinking about Russian you know, intervention, Russia spending a lot of money on, the, on ads, but also uh, domestically with candidates uh, doing a whole bunch of stuff that now is out in the open uh, and uh, they can start being held accountable for. You know, Sam, what I found fascinating was that in the same window during which 
Trump and his PAC spent $274,000. Planned Parenthood, which I am a supporter of, spent $188,000 on Facebook ads over the same period. So obviously the two aren't comparable. And then I think about all of the ways in which that PAC didn't have to spend any money but can rely on things like Infowars and the kind of hate groups that are popping up everywhere on Facebook. And then, of course, let's not forget these lovely Russians, Putin and his homies, who are pushing Trump's messages who are creating ideas even if they're not real in order to drum up that base and so like $274,000 isn't even the whole isn't even the whole pie when you really think about it Um, and we're we're not even on the left we're not even meeting that $274,000 right people who are in the industry know just how inexpensive social media advertising is and the folks who are trying to keep Donald Trump in office are absolutely leveraging uh, this strategy. I just I, I keep being reminded of this question of how we're supposed to behave when kind of all bets are off, right? When d- despite how moral we want to be, despite how righteous we want to be, despite how we want to play by the rules of the game, not only are the rules of the game changing, there are people who do not care about rules at all. And I'm not at all saying that we should dismiss our morality. I fully believe that we should never, ever, ever become the evil that we are fighting. Um, But it does mean that we have to be creative and thoughtful about how we move forward because uh, we're playing against people who don't even care about the rules. One of the things I thought was fascinating was that uh, for not necessarily a ton of money, uh, Trump touched so many people in a way that is just shocking to me. Like, To get in front of 37 million people is not a small thing. And you know that the repetition actually really matters to people. One of the things that I also learned is that Trump ran 5.9 million different versions of ads during the presidential campaign. That's right. 5.9 million different versions of ads so that he could test them and then continue the ones that spread. And conversely, Clinton ran 66,000 different kinds of ads. Like they were just playing a different game. And they understood that their base would be mobilized by the xenophobia, misogyny, and homophobia. That was certainly a hallmark of the campaign and is following through with the administration. But to just think about the sway that the platform has, even those of us who don't use it all the time, like it still really matters in the grand scheme. And I just think I took for granted just how how important it was and continues to be to like just get information in front of people. And you remember Trump didn't really have people knocking on doors. I don't know if Trump voted like Trump campaign people were calling people. Like the traditional ground game just wasn't there. So people didn't take the campaign seriously. But he was using Facebook in a way that nobody was even thinking about. I don't I don't use Facebook that often anymore. Um and I think a lot of my friends and, and people around me um find themselves less active on Facebook than they they've been in the past. But I was looking up some numbers and and I was I was so struck. I had to take kind of take a moment to sit with it, but 22% of the world's population is on Facebook. Like it's it is a staggering staggering number. Over 2 billion people are on Facebook um, and over 75% of those are active users. And so you just think of the sort of mammoth that that Facebook is and that it's become. Uh, and The Daily had a really, a really fascinating episode uh, last week where it was talking about the sort of ethical dilemma that Facebook was experiencing around uh, how to police fake news or what even what constitutes as quote unquote fake news and how to police it. And and Brittany, you brought up Infowars, right? Like it, it's an organization that is premised and predicated its entire existence on fabrication right like on saying something like sandy hook didn't happen which which is so so horrific and so the question i think that facebook you know is presented with is is how do you is that is an organization whose foundational organizing principle is is a lie that that is so uh, harmful and so devastating to so many people, uh, you know, a- across the country, across the world, and, and in particular, the families of the first graders who, who were killed. So how do you decide whether or not they are worthy of even being on the platform if they continue to spread so many mis- uh, so many untruths, uh, so many falsehoods? And, and so, you know, this is 
Facebook is wrestling with a lot of difficult questions at the moment, and and I don't think that they uh, are in a position where they have figured out what the right answer is. And I think they're they're trying to sort of play both sides and say, oh, well, we take it very seriously and, and we sort of reduce the uh, the extent to which that content is seen by people. But, uh, but you know, we, we can't kick people off because they say one falsehood or two falsehoods. So it, all that's to say, it's going to be really interesting to see um, how Facebook manages to evolve in this very, uh, in this different sort of, era that that we find ourselves in hey you're listening to pod save the people don't go anywhere there's more to come there are over 75 million monthly tubi viewers that's more people than there are influencers on the internet which means tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation more popular than soft launching your boyfriend more popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh. Like creator, Kate. This Glade Orchid Neroli candle is so fresh. It's like fresh as watching a sunrise in Santorini. Yeah, I'm going to need more of those. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. So for my news, uh, I'm going going global, um, and, and this is something that happened actually a couple of weeks ago. But but really, I think with Helsinki and Russia and you know the daily sort of inundation of content that we get stateside and from our own administration, uh, this kind of flew under the radar for some folks. But but it's really remarkable news. Ethiopia and Eritrea formally declared an end to their state of war. And it's a two-decade-long war and standoff that has killed over 80,000 people. The leaders of the country said that they're going to resume trade, economic and diplomatic ties, uh, which includes the reopening of embassies and restarting flights. Um, so Eritrea gained its independence from Ethiopia, which has the, and Ethiopia has the second-largest population on the African continent in the early 90s, but it hasn't really had the same level of growth as its neighbor and it's sunken into pretty profound economic and social social isolation. And many of us have seen the terrible images of Eritreans um, who were trying to flee in, in small, flimsy boats across the Mediterranean to get to the shores of Europe during the sort of height of Europe's migration crisis. And, and so many of those boats capsized and so many people who were trying to escape this economic um, deprivation and and who wanted political freedom, uh, so many of them died looking for a better life on their way to Europe, uh, and so this is good news. And and for a lot of folks, they're calling this the sort of East African equivalent to the bringing down of the Berlin Wall. Um, and there's some really beautiful clips of of people taking the first flight from Ethiopia to Eritrea for the first time in again 20 years. And there was this beautiful article uh, the CNN had about uh, strangers who were just calling one another back and forth um, because the phone lines had been open for the first time in in years. And you have family members, you have aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters and friends who haven't seen one another in, in literal decades. And, and now they have this remarkable opportunity to not only build a new sort of political coalition as two nation states, but also to reunite families who haven't seen each other in so long. So it was really good news in a world that seemingly offers uh, little of that these days. But but I thought it was worth mentioning because it's uh, it's really important. And, and too often, these sorts of stories um, from Africa are not discussed and, and sort of taken seriously in, in our sort of public discourse in the United States. Clint, when you talk about the first flight between the two countries sold out in less than an hour and... It is a reminder, you talk about the phone calls of like how people share so many things culturally, but because of uh, political decisions, like people ha have been disconnected for so long. And it was like a testament to how we can work together and how we can resolve things for like that to, for progress to be made there, especially when there don't seem to be as many bright spots in the public conversation around foreign politics. Well, shucks, there's not even a lot of bright spots in the conversation about national politics right now. So always good to shine a light on a bright spot. I also have some folks in my life and that I follow who are from both countries, whose families are from both countries. And just watching them feel so good and triumphant and grateful about this progress was really 
powerful. I think so often we lose our ability to imagine what's possible because we're so mired in what's present. And it can feel like every single day we are just waiting for the next crisis, the next issue, the next ball to drop. Um, And if we step out of that for long enough, we can imagine the future that we deserve. We can imagine equity. We can imagine freedom. We can imagine liberation. And then we can actually go out there and get it. The fact that this has been happening for 20 years means that there are people who were born in both countries who have only ever known this reality and potentially couldn't imagine anything else. And so it's really powerful in this moment in time for us to look to a corner of the world that we may or may not have been as familiar with and derive some hope, derive some power, derive some imagination and derive the ability to to recognize that just because this is the way things are, that doesn't mean that this is the way things always have to be. So I'm appreciative to you, Clint, for bringing um, this news uh, to the conversation and hopeful that we all take a lesson from that, never, ever, ever to give up hope on what the future can be. This is also a reminder of how little coverage uh, there often is of uh, issues going on in the African continent. You know, when you think about Ethiopia, there are over 100 million people living in Ethiopia. It is not a small country by any means. And yet, you know, most people haven't, don't know, you know, what the capital of Ethiopia is, don't know what's happening in Ethiopia geopolitically and, and, you know, culturally and how it uh, interacts with the situation happening in Eritrea and how 80,000 people uh, have died uh, in this conflict and just what that means, you know, what's a conflict at that scale being res- starting to be resolved in a meaningful way actually can mean to people's lives, uh, millions of people's lives. And I think, you know, we have to be paying attention uh, to the issues that impact you know, the largest number of people uh, in, you know, the most positive ways. And I think this is one of those uh, situations that we need to call attention to as an example of that. So my news is about the upcoming docu-series about Trayvon Martin called Rest in Power, the Trayvon Martin story that comes out uh, on July 30th. You know, we've seen the first two episodes so far. All of us on the pod have seen it. And I just want to talk about it because I remember, I'll never forget watching that trial. Like, I remember hearing about the story. I remember where I was. And it was so powerful in these episodes to see Rachel Gentile again because I remember her accent on the stand. I remember the way that people... I remember, like, how honest she was. I remember, like, everything about, like, that moment. And and when the verdict came down, and you're like, there really is no justice. And, and like, what that felt like. I remember my Facebook post that I put up that night. I remember calling my sister, being like, like, what do I do as an uncle? Like, I just remember all of that and watching it. There were parts of the story I realized that I also didn't know that I found out and just saw differently now that I've had some space removed from that moment to reflect on it. And like, that was actually really powerful. So I just wanted us to talk about it. You know, I remember where I was when the verdict came down as well. I was in a restaurant on the Georgetown waterfront with a very good friend of mine. I went to the restroom and came back out to the news. And I just remember looking around and being so mad that everyone seems so unaffected that in this very ritzy part of Washington, D.C., people were like drinking their drinks and eating their expensive food and going on about their business when in reality, not only would Trayvon Martin never be alive to go on about his business, the business of his family was forever changed, right? His brother, his mom, his dad, his entire community um, was forever affected by this thing that lots of people just seemed to let come and go. And I remember saying to my friend, I want to stand up on this table and say they are killing black boys and nobody's paying for it and you just keep drinking. And I remember making eyes with... Uh, a black woman at a, at a table across from mine and it was clear that she had seen the news too and we just gave each other these kind of knowing glances and I got like I got the rest of my food to go I could not be in that space anymore uh, because I just felt like I was suffocating uh, in this place where people just did not seem to care you know as as time has marched on I have gotten to know Trayvon's mother Miss Sabrina who is just one of the bravest most thoughtful women I have ever met and it is so determined and she reminds me that 
For lots of us, these are incidents or merely points on a timeline by which we can identify where we were and what we were doing. Uh, but the level of significance that each of us experienced in that moment pales in comparison to what she and her family have continued to experience. And the people who continue to fight this fight, not only for Trayvon, but for our entire communities, are to be lauded. So I'm glad that this story is being told in its fullness um, and that the family has been uh, involved with it every step of the way. You know, I grew up in, you know, central Florida, which same area where Trayvon Martin was killed. I went to soccer practice uh, in Sanford, which was, you know, the city where he's killed and grew up in Orlando, Florida. It's a couple minutes away. And, you know, I I remember just watching how Trayvon Martin was murdered and how, you know, the killer escaped justice changed my life. You know, it changed not only mine, but so many people, not only in Florida, but across the country, we're able to identify with that case. We're able to identify identify the problem uh, with the justice system in that case. And I think that in many ways created the beginning of a, a realization that, you know, this system and structure like writ large was unjust and needed, you know, fundamental transformational change. Now, I'll never forget, you know, for me, I, I saw myself in Trayvon. Like I was a kid who, uh, would literally walk home from school and get a sweet tea and some Skittles or Starburst and just walk home uh, through a suburban you know community, same like Trayvon Martin. And just to think, you know, at any point somebody could have just come up and murdered me and then gotten away with it, uh, made it so personal, where it was not sort of just a something that you can sort of empathize with or, or see how it impacts other people, but was something that could very much impact your life, right? Or the life of those around you. It could be you, it could be, you know, a little brother, it could be so many people that I knew and cared about and loved. And, and I think that that uh, realization that, that this could be me too, this could be so many people uh, close to me has always made this work um, so personal and so important uh, to be involved with something that you can't sort of just walk away from, but something that will always impact you. And so if you are not impacting the systems and structures that will impact you, then they will just do what they will to you. Um, so you have to be involved in this work. You have to continue it. And, and in many ways, you know, I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing today without that realization and that experience. Trayvon was was a part of a series of transformative moments in my life. I remember uh, when I was in college, you know, seeing what happened with the Gina Six. I remember seeing what happened with Troy Davis. I remember graduating and see what happened with Trayvon. And obviously what happened, you know, two years later in Ferguson. I think all of these were a, a part of a series of cascading events that that really illuminated the sort of what had previously been hidden to an extent, right? It wasn't it wasn't hidden in the way that I think so many of us didn't know it was there, but I don't think we were as cognizant that it was as pervasive. And that so many people had fundamentally different notions of where we were as a country as compared to where we actually were. It politicized me in ways that were profound and and I think I'm still it was the it was the in, in many ways it was the catalyst from a decision to become sort of more intellectually engaged in understanding the sort of systemic and institutional factors undergirding the world and society that would allow things like that to happen and i think you know over the last 6 5 6 years um, since the trial and and since so much of uh, of the movement for black lives has has happened um, you know, over the last half a decade or so, I think the conversation around race and racial justice has is exists in a fundamentally different place than it was before. And in this documentary and this this show, I think showed how Trayvon it was in so many ways the catalyst for uh, us having a fundamentally different and more honest conversation about the history of this country, and, and as a result, the sort of contemporary manifestations of, of racism in this country that for too long we um, d- either chose not to talk about or didn't have the language to talk about. I think so much of the, the conversation that we have on this podcast wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for uh, for Trayvon. Yeah, I just say too is being mindful that, you know, I think about being in the street in Ferguson is that that was uh, like we were all 
you know, many of us were old enough that we remember the Trayvon, uh, the trial, the Zimmerman trial, like we remember that. Um, in many ways, Ferguson was its own phenomenon, right? Like that there is, I don't think there's like a direct relationship between the two. Like it's not like people just like waited to protest and all of a sudden they did it in August of 2014 because of Trayvon, but it definitely helped us like think about the world differently. And it, one was a vigilante, one was a police, very different circumstances. And I, and I do want us to be mindful about the way that we flatten sometimes the way we talk about activism in general. Um, and not do that, but the documentary is important. People should watch it. It'll also be on BT. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. And here's my conversation with the director of Sorry to Bother You, Boots Rally. Boots, it is great to have you here on Pate of the People. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'd love to, there's so many things to talk about with the movie, hopefully not spoiling it for people. In the movie, there's that central tension between like class struggle uh, and the intersection of class and race. Was that, what led you to, that we see so many things that are like very race, not very class. Like class is sort of an underdiscussed thing in film. And I would say even in movement politics, what made you choose that as like a focus of the film? Well, I didn't have to choose. I just looked at what my view of how it all works is. And that, you know, for instance, uh, racist ideas about black folks and people of color have a utility in this system. And that utility is usually like to say, look at their culture. It's insufficient at the very least. It's they're savage, you know families are broken up and they're just blah 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 and that's a way to say that that's why they're in poverty that's that's the whole point and in, re- in reality we're in uh the system of capitalism must have a certain amount of unemployed people in order to exist like you can't have full employment under capitalism because then wages go up. There needs to be an army of unemployed workers to threaten jobs with. And even publications like the Wall Street Journal will openly worry when the unemployment rate is going down because that means wages go up. There's a direct correlation. And when wages go up, profits go down and stocks go down. And um, so, but nobody's going to explain that to everyone that way. So they need some 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 examples and that's where a lot of racist tropes come from but i mean that's just only only one thing but that's one of the things that's not the only reason for racism but that's 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 one of the things anyway i in the movie i'm just talking about like like i take situations and i put them in the context of the world and that's like how i started writing it i didn't say i'm going to write something with this and oh there's race in there let me inject a little bit of class now there's a little more race and let me you know it was just more how does this work like i think everyday black folks a lot of times we're trying to get people involved in stuff that's that most of us in our communities see as extracurricular like i'd love to fight for my freedom but i gotta go to work right and really, the main contradiction, the motor that moves capitalism is the exploitation of labor. 
It's what created capitalism is the big exploitation of labor called slavery. And it's in, and to a lesser extent, obviously, that exploitation still exists. Yet a lot of the times when we create movements, we make that separate from that struggle. And really, that's a struggle that all the people are in individually. And it's the job of movements to collectivize that struggle. Right. Because that's the only way people can win at that. Otherwise, you have people being like, OK, you know, Black Lives Matter movement. I'm really down with everything you're saying. I agree there. I'm just saying from the standpoint, I agree there should not be, you know, uh, police killing black folks. But I got to go to work. I'm hustling to feed my family. This and that. I think that. If we had a movement that took that into account, we'd build movements that could shut down industry. What if when Mike Brown happened, we had been organizing to the point for the, you know, we'd have to back it up 20 something years, you know, and we'd been organizing to the point where our movements also could be like, you know what, we're shutting down these five industries right now until you indict this dude. What I'm saying is when I paint a world, I'm just painting a world how I, and with all the information that I think is there to create that world. And it's more about, I've learned with my art, is I can't take it from the outside in. Like, I want to talk about this and I'm going to put these ideas in there and how do I make it real? I just talk about a real situation and put it into context. Now that makes me think about something in the film. This the tension between sort of like the individual and and collective action is like a central part of uh, the main character. In without, I'm trying to ask this without spoiling it for people that haven't seen it. Um, how do you think about like in the movie? Um, it takes a personal awakening for him to realize like he was wrong, even though the people around him had said like, "Hey, like." this isn't right mm -hmm. uh, do you think that that is like more true to how people like experience it today is that why you represent it like that or there are people that push and have seen the film and sort of are like well god if everybody has to have this personal moment then it'll take forever for us to get to the other side of freedom well but i think that the personal moment comes in different ways like sometimes it could be inspiring that you see people around you doing things so for instance a big turning point for me was in high school I had already gotten, you know, involved in uh, political organizations and kind of had had accepted the kind of sort of view that we did a we did a walkout against year round school. Now, let me tell you, in high school, walkout against year round school is probably the easiest thing you're going to take right. up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You That's know, great. but but it was but it was, you know, just to put it in context. There was at the time there was still a white, a quote unquote, thought of white school in in Oakland, which was called Skyline. They were the only ones that weren't going to have to have it, and the year round school was a way to save money on textbooks, and it was going to track kids. Oh, like wow. you get to once you're in, you enter ninth grade, you get tested, and they decide whether you're going to college or not, basically. And so we did a walkout. Two thousand of the twenty two hundred students walked out. Now. Probably a lot of them wow. were like, let's leave school. Plus, I just don't want to have year-round school. Right. You know, so it's easy sell. But 2000, but, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, so it was overwhelming to everyone involved. And we walked down, we marched down, got into a fight with the principal who's an ex-cop and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, where the students had, he came and grabbed the bullhorn from me and I was like... You know, he actually didn't grab it from me. He said, Riley, give me that bullhorn. And he's this big buff ex-cop. And I was like, okay. And I started handing it to him. And everybody was like, what the, what the fuck are you doing? And grabbed it. And, you know, this big buff dude, like, swinging 12 students around. Wow. And um, got the bullhorn back from him and kept going and marched off. Marched a couple miles down to where to the uh, to the school board building. Soon as we got there, school school board representative comes out and says, "Okay, we've decided to not do year round school." Oh, look at that. And so, and this is the '80s, and 
even though people feel like that's close to the 70s and 60s, you know, when you're 15, that was light years away. Right. We hadn't seen anything like that. Right. Everybody just got infused with power right then. Like, wait, this is how easy it is? Why haven't we been doing this? You know? That's dope. But the point is, a lot of organizers were born that day. What made you even feel like you could do, like, help plan a march like that? Do you remember, like, what that process was? Just backing it up maybe one year before that, a youth organizer came. I was 14. Youth organizer came to my door. I, I mentioned something like, they were like, hey, you want to come to this thing? And I had said yes, but totally planned to not be there. It was like a Saturday. I was right. like, okay, it doesn't You're like, matter. I'm coming. You're like, yeah. I'm definitely not going to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, but they showed up at the door. I hadn't left yet. And it was a van full of 14-year-old girls. And so I was like, uh, what? And then and then he was like, the, the organizer was like, hey, you want to go to the beach? But first we're going to go to, uh, first we're going to, uh, go support the Watsonville cannery workers strike. So got in the car with them. And what I found out at that point was that there were all these very smart, brilliant girls slash soon to be women who knew everything about, you know, what was happening on the news. And at the time that was like not something I was paying attention to. They knew what was going on in the world. And like, I was like, well, how do you know, know all these things? They're talking about things That's like cool. adults would talk about them. And, and you like, almost ditched it. Yeah. You and almost I, didn't even go. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you know, I, I want to, how do you get all that information? It's because they had been engaged and thinking that they could change things. So yeah. it makes you want to know what, what the elements are you have to work with. You got the school all worked up. I yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know um, I, a big part of the film is the white voice, and, you know, there's a lot to say about that. But I wanted to, uh, one of the things I was really fascinated by in, in the movie was not only the white boy, the voice, but the way that whiteness is sort of present even when it's not, and the way that, um, like, the black, when he gets promoted, the black character is actually his sort of, like, person. It's not a white person who, like, is his, mm-hmm. his guide or whatever. So I, the question I have is like, how have you, or how do you think, even independent of the movie, how do you think we should address these issues of like white supremacy and the way whiteness shows up? And I, again, I think about it because I was fascinated with the way I think the movie does a really good job of showing that it's not just white people who reinforce whiteness. Um, yeah. So I thought I'd say that. Yeah, I, what the film is looking looking at are ways of finding where our actual power base is. And some of that has, you know, because if you're looking at ways to change things or fight anything, you have to, you have to have some leverage, right? You have mm-hmm. to have some thing that you know, otherwise we're just saying what we don't like, right? So, which is important. It's important to make the statements and there's a conflict that we're at right now. There's questions that we're trying, that, that, we're asking people that are involved in movements like because I put it like this. My personal thing is I've been involved in stuff where we get 50,000 people out and the new people that come are like, OK, what now? Right. And the organizers are, really don't have an answer. If they might try to come out with an answer like, oh, it's all about just let your voice be heard. You know, and really, that's kind of reinforcing what it's like. It all works if everybody just speaks. It kind of makes it seem like this is this is that. But I think this is like this is a system that works based as long as everyone lets themselves be heard. And I think that we're not being honest only because we're not looking at the whole picture. How does power work? We know that those with the money have the power. But we're the ones that generate the wealth for them. Mm-hmm. We have a way to manipulate the puppeteers, if you will. Right? We have a we have access to their purse strings. How do we fight white supremacy? I think first we have to start out with figuring out where our base of power is. Mm-hmm. What do you think the audience's responsibility is in a moment like this when it feels like? Uh, 
this this moment feels different for a lot of people who've organized before because not only is there not a president who's sympathetic, but people have been under non-sympathetic presidents before. But this one is doing things in a way that people just like have not experienced mm-hmm. before. Um, so even you think about a Nixon, a Reagan, it's like people could sit down with him and and like you didn't mm-hmm. he he wasn't like putting kids in cages in this way. You yeah. know, like it was just different. So so. So as somebody who is who identifies as an organizer, an activist, and a storyteller, like what do you think the artist's responsibility is in this moment, if any? Well, I think every human being's responsibility is to um, make the world more just, um, no matter whether they're, you know, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are making movies or you work at the movie theater, you know, um, it, it's it's everyone's responsibility to do that. Um, I think right now some things are being brought to the light because this guy isn't able to or doesn't care about hiding uh, his his uh, agenda, and we're not used to that because others have hidden it. But what it's done is created an opportunity for us right now because people are incensed Um, and much like in the movie one thing that's said is sometimes when just the problem is exposed but there's no way for anyone people feel like there's no way for them to change it they just accept it Um, and I think it is those of us who think of our, who have already taken up the mission of wanting to change the world to engage in campaigns that are that have concrete winnable goals so that we can build further so that people feel like there's something they can get their hands on but those concrete winnable goals with with a, a path to other bigger, more visionary goals with a vision, a, a radical vision for the future that can, that, that where we can change the system and, um, and, and have something in place that ensures that people have say over their lives. Um, so I think, that, I think that that's the thing we have to, you know, sometimes we also like, when I say that we don't have any goals, sometimes our goals are so far out that they are really just an artistic statement. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody will say that. I appreciate you saying that. You know, and those artistic statements are welcome. You know, because they they make you think. But if we're going to organize and make a movement that grows, we can't only do things that that end up in frustration. We have to organize and with things that we can win, but that have to do with people using their power. I don't mean like, oh, we can't change anything. Let's only like get involved in mayoral elections or something like that. This means let's involve, let's get involved in things where we can use things that we have at our control collectively withhold labor is one of them, you know, whatever, rent strikes, different things like that. You know, I look at it like this. There's one thing that gets said, like, when people talk about the the Trump and Hillary election. Trump won by less votes than Mitt Romney lost by. That means there were millions of people that showed up to vote for Obama and even showed up to vote for Mitt Romney that were like, nah, it wasn't because people were apathetic. Also, altogether, there's only like 70 million people voting. There's over 300 and something million people in the United States. This means a bunch of people are not voting. Why? Not because they're just, I don't care. Because they don't think that those are, that, that that's going to change their life. They want something different. It's not because they're apathetic, it's because they're to the left of both parties. And so much so that it's an opportunity 
for us to show people, to show all those tens of hundreds of millions of people a way that they can grab the reins of power where they are. And you talk about organizing where you are as we come to the end of our time together. Uh, you worked at a telemarketing mm-hmm. firm or place when you were younger. I did it a couple different times. One time in, in, while I was in college and then the other time um, when I was 24 and after we had done our second album, which was called Genocide and Juice. Um, were you a good telemarketer? Oh, yeah, I was really good. You know, we had made this organization called the Young Comrades, and so I needed, I had stopped doing music, so I waited, I, I needed a way to make money and still be able to organize, so I could work, like, sometimes just one day every two weeks. You were and, that good? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and 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 it hurt, hurt me uh, in my soul, because even though it was uh, telefund fundraising, and I was doing it to you know do this other thing it was lying to people in order to uh so it would like for instance one of the campaigns like we'd raise money for like public television or whatever one of the campaigns was for the la mission we were calling from the bay area down to uh orange county the la mission is a homeless shelter it's a homeless shelter in downtown los angeles and so but you call all over the place. So we were calling to Orange County, which is a very conservative area. And um, as far as I knew at the time, I don't know what it is now, mainly white. Um, but at least that was what it was in my mind. And I think that's who I was calling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would uh, do say something like, hey, how's it going? Um, and I can't do the voice like I could back then. But um, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I... I just want, Mr. Rogers, uh, I just want to make sure that you're okay. We're just calling, doing a survey. They're like, what are you talking about? Well, you haven't suffered any break-ins recently because there's a rash of them going on in your neighborhood and, you know, cars are being broken. So your car's okay? Yeah. They'd be like, yeah, you're, and I'd be like, oh, that's great. Um, It might be because of what we've recently instituted and we're, we're trying to spread it out more because we understand that uh, that the police can't do anything about what's going on in your neighborhood. So what we're going to do is what we're doing is uh, we're bringing all the homeless people from your neighborhood, making sure they get out of there because you don't want the police around. It makes your neighborhood seem poor. You know, we're, we we want to bring them out of your neighborhood to downtown Los Angeles and food and, and feed and clothe them in the Los Angeles mission. We're going to give them God. Um, wow. And the money would come in. That's crazy. And so, again, a soul-crushing thing that you're like, uh, maybe that's, part, I never, I didn't really think about it till I started doing these interviews about it, that that is also some of the, the thing. Because on the one hand, it's raising money for a homeless shelter and they're getting the money and right. doing this. On the other hand, it's putting out these messed up ideas, you know. That keep living, you know, but beyond the call. Yeah. Well, everybody, um, make sure you go see Sorry to Bother You. It's in theaters. I just saw it. And uh, Boots, we consider you a friend of the pod. Thank you. Thank you. I consider the pod a friend of me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save That People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend. And rate us on iTunes. Thanks. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. 
Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.